Are you a current or future physician assistant wanting to learn more about finances? Then join me on this journey to become a PA the FI way. Hi, my name is Kat and I'm a practicing certified physician assistant who will be your host. It took me five years after I started practicing medicine as a PA to thoroughly dive into my personal finances after I discovered the concept of financial independence. I want to use what I have learned to help you avoid some of the financial mistakes that I have made while sharing some of the financial wins that I have had along the way. Join me as we discuss financial strategies to guide you to becoming a physician assistant on the way to financial independence. so excited to dive into today's episode. But before we do so, a quick word from our sponsor. Deciding how and when to pay off student loans is not an easy decision for most. Many of you are feeling weighed down by your mortgage-sized student loans and are asking yourself, how did I get into this mess? Student loans contribute to stress and burnout for PAs, as well as other high-earning professionals. Many PAs, even with the best of intentions, unfortunately make poor financial decisions on their student loans. Look no further than studentloanadvice.com. For a few hundred dollars, they will meet with you for about an hour. They'll go over your personal student loan situation and help you come up with a plan for optimizing your student loan management. Find out how much they can save you today at studentloanadvice.com PAFI. And if you are interested in learning more, check out the PA The FI Way podcast, episode 42, where Andrew, one of the co-founders, joined me as a guest. Otherwise, head over to studentloanadvice.com slash PAFI. Now back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to the PA The FI Way podcast. I'm your host, Kat, and I am so excited for today's episode and today's guest. We have Karen Calcino on the show today, and you might know her from Instagram. She's really prevalent over there, but she also has an awesome blog and business and stuff like that, too. So welcome to the show, Karen. I really appreciate you joining us today. Hey, are you kidding me? It's my pleasure. We've been trying to like nail this down for a while, and I'm super excited to talk to you. I love everything that you're doing online, and I think that we will have a very interesting conversation about <laughs> about all this. Stuff. I think so too. I think that it's going to be full of many different nuggets for all the listeners today. So thanks again for joining. Do you mind sharing a bit more about yourself, Karen? What kind of PA are you and what all you're kind of up to right now at this time? Just kind of introduce yourself for the listeners who aren't familiar. Sure. So I am Karen. I have been a PA for 15 years, mostly in surgery, grand majority in cardiothoracic surgery. And I am a person who has always kind of searched for the holy grail of things, which for a person in medicine, a woman in medicine specifically, is successful work-life integration. And for a person that actually loves surgery and loves cardiothoracic surgery, which is like a lot of hours and and crazy stuff happening all the time, it has been my career-long struggle and mission to figure out a way where I could practice surgery, right? CT surgery, yet at the same time, have a life. And everything that I've done in business or personally has really been an attempt to figure that out. 
Okay. So the first thing that I did 10 years ago, five years into PA practice was that I was burnt out, had a panic attack, thought I was dying inside of the CVICU after a normal case, had chest pain and the irony of me dying of my own specialty inside of a cardiovascular intensive care unit where no one could hear me was not lost on me. And it scared the crap out of me. Oh man, I'm so sorry to hear that. I walked away from... Thank you. I appreciate that. But it was a it was a great thing because that led me to reevaluate my life. And I quit that job, even though like I loved it, but the pace was making it really hard to enjoy and to be a human. So I walked away from that. I went to Southeast Asia for a month, eat, pray, love, travel by myself, did all that. And then when I came back, I didn't know what I was gonna do. I had nothing lined up, nothing like that. And as soon as I land one of my surgeons was, Hey, we have a case. Can you, can you help us? You know what I'm saying? Like on your terms, like whatever you want to do. And at the time I was in a very interesting position because I was, uh, I had been the PA that had launched a robotic thoracic program at two hospitals in the area. And I was the only assistant that was trained to do it. My attending had tried it with other surgeon partners and it was a nightmare. He didn't want to do that again. He needed me. We had like really, I had been involved in robotics and specifically um, mitral valve repairs um, ever since I was a student, honestly. Like, so it was something that it was kind of like my skill set. And at the time, there were only 28 other assistants in the country that could do it. So I had that in my back pocket. So when he called me and said, hey, program can't run without you. Let's do this, like whatever you want, you know. And then I kind of like had the opportunity to kind of like set my own path and I said all right I'll do it I'll do it for this I want to bill insurance I don't want to do this and they were like yeah yeah whatever you want I was like really like are you kidding me so essentially it was an interesting thing because then all of a sudden I came back to the same hospital I was working at for way more money for no call calling shots everybody was so happy to see me all the time because I basically came in to save the day so it was a complete shift yeah (laughs) Like just from being an employee, like a hospital employee, right? And being like a cog in the wheel, all of a sudden you come in and you're like positioned differently. So it worked out really well for me. And then that's what started. uh, Eventually, I started my own first assisting business because eventually I got calls from other surgeons and started to expand into other specialties. And then eventually the case overflow got too crazy and I started to hire people. And it really kind of like became a ticket to freedom temporarily. Yeah. (laughs) And when I say temporarily, because that lasted about, you know, 10 years or so. And then um, reimbursement started to go down. It was just becoming an operation that was I had a difficult time scaling it on my own for two reasons. The reason might surprise you. It was more ethical reasons than anything else, because the successful and this is something that people might not know, the successful first assisting, surgical first assisting companies, the way that they make revenue and the way that they make their money is that they essentially pay their PAs and their first assistants way less than what their billing is worth, right? And that that's perfectly fine. And they also do this thing called balance billing, which means that they decide, hey, this is the amount of money we're going to get paid for a hip replacement or a cabbage or whatever, and we'll get what we want from insurances and then the rest will 
direct bill the patient to get the money that we want. I had a huge problem with direct billing patients. I probably directly billed maybe like five patients in my entire career because as a person who knows what it's like not to have insurance, when I I was in college, I had a UTI and they sent me to the ER and it cost me $5,000 and I never paid it and it ruined my credit and it was like, oh, wow. Good grief. Yeah. So in the back of my head, I was like, I know what that feels like never doing it. Can you imagine having surgery and then open heart surgery or whatever major surgery? And then all of a sudden you're on a fixed income. And especially my population was mostly like, obviously like um, elderly people on Medicaid and I'm sorry, Medicare. And so ethically is just something that I couldn't, it was just dissonant to me. So I couldn't be that sharp that sends people bills. I couldn't be that sharp that that underpays PAs and first assistants for what they do. Because again, I know what that feels like. I was a cog in the wheel. And so it was a difficult thing ethically to scale. Um, so the way like my end, end goal was like, I just want to have good work-life balance, love what I do, enjoy what I do at a pace that, you know, making a difference and, and also having the autonomy to work with who I want. Right. Because that's important. Like surgery can be a very toxic place and you can literally, it could suck your soul out to work in, in the wrong place. So, um, yeah. So then the pandemic hit. Yeah. So it coincided with all these things that were already going in my business. I was burnt out from running around because by not direct billing patients, I then was able to, I I remember just doing like triple the amount of work for half the money. So I increased it like, that's not sustainable. You can't just increase like your, your output and hope that you're, that it's going to be directly proportional to your revenue because it doesn't really work that way, especially when you're working with insurance companies that they really do pay you what the hell you want, like at the end of the day. And then, so I'm having to fight insurance companies. Like I did this case, like I still have a lot of cases that like the other day I got a check from a case that I did in 2016. Oh man, good grief. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know this. So I want to give you some insight into the back end of medicine that like the good thing about PAs is that most of us like are employees and we don't really have to worry about that, but it's interesting, but it's important. I feel like for us to know how that works. Because you like it gives you the power to negotiate and to do all, all these other things. So I learned a lot from that business. So essentially, I was burnt out to a crisp. I'm not even kidding. Like by the end, by the beginning of 2020, I was like running on fumes, like really. And then the pandemic hit. <laughs> so right, and it just made everything worse. It was a cry. Yeah, it made everything worse. It was a crisis. My mental health was garbage. I could not fathom staying in medicine at that point and I literally was going through a period where I was already taking medication for my anxiety and depression and now all of a sudden I was married and was interested in trying to conceive and then it required me to change medications and I wasn't doing well with that and then the pandemic hit and the cases stopped and I was worried about my business staying afloat and it all came to a head and I said, no, I need to like walk away. I need time to myself because my health, like, it, so this was the second thing that scared the shit out of me and was kind of like the catalyst for another shift in my profession. Sure. And I know this is a very long winded introduction and story, but I feel like, I think it'll, it's interesting to hear. And because a lot of people don't know about this or don't talk about it in the yeah, profession. So totally. 
So the second thing, so I walked away from the PA profession for seven months and it really forced me to really get intentional with my finances. And this is ultimately why I'm here, right? Um, it allowed me to heal. It allowed me to do all these things. And all of a sudden we were down to one income, which, you know, my husband is a ortho trauma rep and I'm a PA by all intents and purposes were considered and I air quotes high earners, sure. right? So we essentially never had to worry about paying our bills. We lived below our means. We thought we were doing everything right, you know, putting aside some little money for retirement. We, we owned our, our home, this and that and the other. So we were fortunate in, in, in the sense that when we went down to one income, it wasn't like a catastrophic life-threatening thing immediately. But there was, when you don't keep fine like handle on your finances. I mean, keeping track of every penny in, every penny out. There's a lot of energetic leaks that happen. So I like to think about those kind of things as energetic leaks, because at the end of the day, I have to go out and get that money, you know, to make up for the 10 subscriptions that I forgot to sign up for, to make up for the fact that I'm just eating out every single night because I'm tired, to make up for the fact. So in a way, when I was forced to really sit down with my finances and put a fine tooth comb through everything, I'm talking like my business. I, I looked at what I was doing because now I had time to do it. I wasn't like all like in a case all the time and managing the back end became impossible once I uh, had to double my work output. So when I sat down and really thought about the value and the energy the life force that it was costing me to do certain things. I got really intentional about my finances as a way to create freedom from having to work under whatever conditions, you know, either for someone else or for myself in a way that it wasn't working. So that's when I started this financial journey. And then of course, like if you follow me on Instagram, you know, if I learned something today, I'm telling you about it in the afternoon. <laughs> if I something yesterday, I'm going to tell you about it the next sure. morning. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I think it's valuable. And, and as a person that I'm the oldest of five, we're all like first generation kids. It's instinctual to me. As soon as I learn something to call my, my siblings and be like, hey, you need to do this. Like, oh, yeah. OK, let's do it. Whatever, whatever. So it's just something that it's innate to me. Yeah. So that's kind of like the story of how we got Yeah. There. <laughs> no, that's amazing. There, there are definitely a lot of interesting topics that you've already touched on that I think it would be more helpful for some of the listeners to go a little bit deeper if you don't mind sharing some of those details. No, please, let's go. This is what I live for. I'm an open book. And I think it's important to be transparent with everything, yeah. even money. So let's do this. So you touched on how you became a PA as a first gen student. For those who aren't very familiar with your story, do you mind sharing what that process was like? What were some of the challenges that you faced? And then how were you able to overcome them? Okay, um, I can't promise I'm not going to cry. <laughs> That's valid. Because <laughs> it's still <laughs> very much uh, raw in my heart because I do work with students currently. That um, sure. So, you know, I, I, I came from a veterinary background because I was that little girl that always wanted to be a vet. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Um, most kids grow out of it. I literally was like, no, like at 20 at 19, 18, you asked me, I was like, no, I'm going to be a vet, just like when I was little. So that was my path. So I was 
planning on being a veterinary medicine. And when I was in college, I was working at an animal hospital, started in the kennel, worked my way up to tech. And so I had been very experienced in veterinary medicine. Um, and I noticed, so two things happened when I graduated undergrad college, I went to a private university, uh, here in Boca called Lynn university. And I had an academic scholarship. I was a resident assistant. So basically most of my tuition was covered nice. except for a very small part of it. So about, it, it came out to like, I think about $10,000 a year when the tuition was something ridiculous, like $70,000, $80,000 a year in this private university. So I came out with like relatively a low amount of sure. debt. However, $30,000 to me was crazy. So a couple of things happened. I graduated undergrad, right? Degree in biology. I did research in organic chemistry, like all this in preparation to vet school, working in an animal hospital, worked my way up to work in an emergency animal hospital where I was really doing a lot of hands-on procedural stuff, stabilizing animals, hit by cars, assisting in wow. surgery, anesthesia, intubation, like all these things. Uh, and all of a sudden, six months later, uh, I was... I wasn't applying to vet school just yet because I was in a relationship with my college sweetheart and he was like wanting to finish his master's and we were supposed to decide. So I said, I'll wait for you like for a year, you know, whatever, whatever. And then in that time we broke up devastating because it was like, you know, absolutely devastating to me because uh, I live in Florida by myself. My family lived in Dominican Republic at the time and I didn't have any support and it yeah. was just terrible. The second thing that happened was that my student loan payments started. Oh, man. And for $30,000, literally, I remember looking at the bill and being like, um, that's twice my rent. And there's no way because, you know, when you first get the bill from your student loan payments, you can consolidate and do other things. But when you don't know how the process works and you're 21 years old and you're looking at this bill and you're thinking that they expect me to pay this amount of money, it's really sure. scary without having any guidance to navigate. Like my, my, my father lived in Dominican Republic. My mom uh, was in and out of the country at the time, but she barely spoke English. So I really had no navigation in this. I was just kind of like out on my own. And then with the pressure of having to be an example for my siblings, yeah. you know what I mean? So it was important that I didn't f up. Like that was something that was always in the back of my head. So I got the bill for broke up. My veterinary friends that were just coming out of vet school, obviously, like most of my friends were like in the veterinary community, they were having an extremely hard time paying off their loans. We had conversation about, they're like, yeah, I'm in this amount of debt and I came out making $50,000 and I don't, I'm having a hard time paying that because guess what? Vet school is just as expensive as PA school or medical school. Yeah. Maybe harder to get into because there's less schools. So and then I also had to move because there was there's no veterinary schools in South Florida. And, and, and the prospect of having to do all that, all that stuff by myself scared the crap out of me when I was already like working full time and having a hard time with the sure. payment. So I reevaluated my life. Okay. And um, so it, it was really hard. So I didn't know what a PA was. Like one night I was working a night shift with, with a visiting vet. I'll never forget his name. His name is Dr. Dr. Hall. I mean, he was really old at the time. He was like one of these like old school 1950s vets, exactly like what you sure. would picture, you know what I'm saying? And uh, he said, well, why don't we, you know, and we were working night shift. And when it slows down, as often we do in the ER, even with people, if it's slow in the ED, 
what do you do? You start talking to your, <laughs> with your with your colleagues as a way to pass the time and not fall asleep. So we got to talking. I said, yeah, this is my issue. I have a degree in bio, blah, blah, blah. I don't really want to go to medical school. I'm not interested in being a nurse at this point because what am I going to go back and get a two-year degree, be a nurse and all that? And I said, I'm already, as a vet tech, I was already kind of a PA, like for vets. I had been working with them for so long. I was a trusted team member, like Things would come in the door. I would already stabilize the animal by myself, put IVs in, do CPR, do whatever I had to do, run lab, run x-ray, look at the x-ray and be like, this is what's going on. Fix it before the vet even had a chance to come wow. and look at it because that's how trusted we were. Um, and in veterinary medicine, you can sure. do that. So I was like, I, I would die a slow death if I had to kind of like go back clinically and just be the like a nurse that is only legally allowed to provide treatment. Mm -hmm. I need to be part of the diagnosing and part of the treatment plan like I am now. So I, I kind of was like stuck. And he's like, well, why don't you just become a PA? And I was like, what is that? Like, you, listen, I don't want to, like, if I had to work in an office taking blood pressures for doctors, I would kill myself. Because that's what I, that's what PA sounds like, physician right. assistant, like you're. Unfortunately, yes. the doctor. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, yeah, that's what it sounds like. And then he's like, no, 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 my niece is in PA school and she's literally out on rotations, like with the medical students and the residents and they all get treated the same. And I was like, huh, that sounds too good to be true. I said, but I want to be able to diagnose and do that. Yeah, yeah, do it. They can prescribe, they can do surgery, they can do all the help and surgery, do all these things. And I was like, okay, whatever. So that morning I went home and I uh, researched it and there was a PA school about 30 miles from where I lived at the time. The application was due in a month. I never met a PA, never shadowed, never, again, I applied to PA school within a month of knowing what the hell it was. And for me, it was the correct choice because it, it seemed like it would give me an opportunity to expand clinically and be hands-on and procedural and be able to dabble in a bunch of different specialties, which was what I was already doing. So the path to PA was really, really hard for me, really hard because, um, first of all, I didn't have any family support whatsoever. My credit was trashed from that ER visit and, and the medical stuff. And so I couldn't get any private sure. loans. So when it came time, first of all, the application process was all out of pocket. I had to work to do it, sometimes go without paying my bills and stuff like that to be able to afford the application fees and whatever. I only applied to two PA schools because I can only afford to apply to two. And they were the ones that were two in South Florida, the only ones at the time, which was Nova South Eastern and Barry University back in, this was 2004, okay. I'm talking about. Um, so that was really hard. I had to take the GRE, which was a bunch of money that I didn't have. Uh, I couldn't afford to take like a course, like people, you know, go take a Kaplan course. So I had to self-study. So I bought the book and hey, <laughs> let's do this. You know what I mean? I, I studied for a little bit and took it. I mean, I had already taken the MCAT by that point, because again, in preparation for veterinary school, you, you either had to take the MCATs or the VCATs. And I'm like, I, you know, don't have any veterinary science experience. So, um, I took the MCATs, but, um, but the hardest thing about it was that the, I, I ended up getting accepted to both programs that I applied for. I mean, I really didn't realize how hard it was for people. I thought I'm going to PA school and that was that. 
Like I, I then I realized how hard it was to actually get in after <laughs> when I heard all the horror stories of people like applying a bunch of times. And for me, it was really like an easy transition academically because I was a good student. I had all the stuff and they accepted my veterinary experience. And the reason that they did, I really believe is because of my personal statement, sure. because I explained what I did and I explained that thirst that I had for multi-specialty stuff and procedures and stuff like that. Um, and that's probably why I'm so passionate about the personal statement when it comes to disadvantaged students. But so then the hardest thing was it was a private university, Nova Southeastern. It was the one that was closest to my house. So that's why I picked it. Um, and I didn't have any credit. So the government loans paid for most of the tuition, not all, not all. And then the rest of the stuff, living expenses, this and that and the other had to be taken care of by private loans. And that's what kind of people do. I didn't qualify for private loans. I didn't have any credit. No, nobody in my family could co-sign for me. So I had to work full time. Well, <laughs> wow. Sounds so challenging, Karen. Yeah, sorry. Well, I was in PA school and I was working and I was very food insecure. Because, um, so I remember, um, excuse It's me. okay. I remember not being able to eat lunch in PA school. You know, when you're in PA school, the didactic portion, everyone's studying during lunchtime. And I would go to my car and sleep because I didn't have anything to eat and I didn't want to be hungry. So it was really hard. And, um... Now, looking back, like, there was no way, no way in hell that I was going to stop. It was just something that I had to do, and it was very traumatic to the point that I don't remember a lot of what happened during those two years. So tough. To the point that my classmates, I look at pictures of my class, and I'm like, who are these people? Wow. <laughs> like, I only remember, like, a handful of people. And they're like, hey, remember when in class or, you know, the class outing, I never was able to participate, like, in that, like, community. Like, I, I continue to work as a veterinary technician in the animal ER. So, like, I remember on Friday afternoons, I would leave um, PA school during rush hour traffic. So, I used to, um, the, the campus was in Fort Lauderdale, and I used to live in Delray, which was, like, I don't know, like, 35 miles away. But I worked in West Palm Beach, which was even further north. So in rush hour traffic, Friday after they dacted, after getting my ass kicked in school, I would get in my car and drive to West Palm Beach. And then I would basically stay in the hospital until Sunday morning. And thankfully, I'll tell you, like, there's two people that I that I thank a lot. And it was my, my boss at the time at the animal hospital she would let me study like she was so supportive of everything that I did she was just really accommodating and amazing awesome. and then the second thing was that my the director of my program and the PA program one day I I broke down like in the middle of class I mean not like publicly or anything like that but I just remember being in lecture and it was like you know when somebody's like wah 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 and I couldn't pay my rent and I didn't have anything to eat and I didn't know like how I was going to put gas in my car to be able to make it back home and this is not the other and these are things that no student should ever have to worry yeah. about right and I um went I walked out of class like a zombie just in the middle of lecture walked out of class and went 
to the office and I said I want to talk to the to to like the director and basically to tell them I quit. I said I I can't do this anymore. Like this is breaking me and like I'm a strong person, but I don't think that I can that I can sure. do this so hard. And he was like the best person ever. Like till this day, like he's a mentor that I value. And he would kill me if I said this because he's like, don't tell anybody. <laughs> but he actually pulled out his checkbook mm. and gave me three thousand wow. dollars that helped me pay the rent. And um, I don't think I've ever shared that with anybody. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> before. You caught me at a very emotional time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm quite familiar with that. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing that you had Um, those awesome mentors, Karen. And I think that that they can show how much of an impact that they had in your life and that you're able to have that impact for so many more people. So I think that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And there's actually another another really funny story that I think that I'm going to share because I think you guys would enjoy the story. Sure. <laughs> so when I was working in the animal ER, I lived in West Palm Beach. And eventually, uh, I said to myself, I'm going to take this train called the tri-rail that literally it took two hours to and from like with rush hour because it stopped at every stop there like that. And one of my professors was on the train with sure. me. <laughs> so I would be sitting there like uh, reading or whatever, and it would drop you off at this train station. And then the train station had a free kind of shuttle to the college. Some t- and it was every hour for a limited amount of hours. Sometimes I would miss the shuttle and like be crying in the stops and just like un- annoyed, you know, or leaving class. Like if, if I didn't get out exactly at a certain time, like I would miss it and it would be a nightmare and then I would be stranded. And, you know, like in, if you live in South Florida and you don't have a car, like you're screwed. So anyways, I noticed that one of my professors was on the same train that, that I was like a few times. And I, I kind of like would say like, hey, whatever, whatever. And I forgot about it. So one weekend I was working at the animal hospital and somebody rings the doorbell because for security reasons, we had a, we had a doorbell at, at the ER and somebody rings the doorbell and I open the door. I'm the only tech there as usual. Like I'm the only tech there. I basically am running the place like, cause I'm there all the time. And it's my professor holding a cat that's having oh, no. seizures. So first of all, it's illegal to work in my PA school. There was a rule that you could not have oh, a job. Interesting. So the fact that I was working was a secret and it was like literally in the bylaws that I mean, if you worked, you could be kicked out because you know, X, Y, Z reason. So <laughs> I looked like I opened the door and he recognized me immediately. I recognized him, but we kind of like, <laughs> uh, so I took his cat, stabilized him, IV, you know, all this stuff. Like in five minutes, he was stabilized. He was in a cage with a, running a drip. I already pulled labs, whatever, whatever. And I came up and I and I came to the lobby and I said, hey, um, he's doing fine. He stopped seizing. I did this, that, and the other. Because medically, I know he could understand. And the vet's like busy because we were kind of like seeing, he was seeing other patients or whatever, or she, I don't remember who it was. And um, and he's like, yeah, fine. And he and he was like, whatever, like, wow, like, like impressive kind of thing. Like, I can't believe like, he did. I was like, yeah, yeah. Like, don't worry, we'll take care of him, this and that and the other. So, anyways, the cat ended up, the he was poisoned with antifreeze, and that's what the um. issue was. So he had, like, end, like organ end failure. So, you know, interesting tidbit, 
Antifreeze is sweet. Mm -hmm. So if your car drips it, an animal licks it, they're going to like it, especially cats, but it's like catastrophic and it causes yeah. an organ failure. And this is unfortunately what happened to, to his son's cat. Um, but after everything was said and done, I was like, look, please do not tell the school. No it kidding. was literally like, you know how you have like a, like, like three or four main professors. He was like one of them. He was like the, the sure. big one. And I was like, please do not tell them that I'm working. And he was like, are you kidding? I'm like, I don't care. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, good for you, whatever, whatever. But since that day, we developed kind of like an unspoken bond. And he's also one of my mentors awesome. that I speak with to this That's day. amazing. When he comes to town, because he lives in the islands now, we go out to lunch. Uh, we even did a medical mission together in Guatemala one time. So you just like never know who it's going to be. I really believe that if you have no support, like, the universe or God, whatever you want to think, will find people to replace what you need on your way. So I was lucky. Yeah. In that way, so. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing those stories. For sure. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's incredible, your, your journey. So it sounds like it was incredibly full of challenges. And I can't even imagine. But I think that you are an absolute example to look up to for so many pre PAs that are trying to get into PA school and practicing PAs as well. So thank you so much for sharing your story, Karen. Yeah, thank. Like you're very welcome. I think that that it's important. It shouldn't. It shouldn't be this hard for anybody. It it really shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> like so, it bothers me that the lack of diversity that we have in our field is not caused by what you think it's caused. It's not caused by oh well, people of color decide that they don't or whatever. Like diversity population, any stretch of the word they don't want to come and be PAs. Like we, you know, it's not a, a, a matter of not like, this is a, a profession that has changed my life. It's made me financially stable. It's made me like all these things. I'm very grateful for it, but it's not that we don't want to, it's that you can't. So until the barriers to entry are shifted and the leadership also shifts to a more diverse leadership, because the truth is that if you're not a stakeholder in it, like for instance, if you haven't experienced that, it, it's going to be hard for you to kind of like, you, you have blind spots. So if you don't have people around you to point these things out or whatever, if you don't have to be a stakeholder to really care about these issues, the truth is that things will never sure. change. And unfortunately, our profession, as you know, is very homogeneous um, or homogenous. I don't know. You have no accents in English language, so I still struggle with like where to put the emphasis <laughs> or emphasis on words. You're doing awesome. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, and it, it's hard. It's it's a again. There's so many nuances because, for instance, a person like me, I have zero interest in being in leadership, academia, whatever. Why? The main thing is because there's so much work to do out here with these students. Like I would be remiss. Like I, I would just be a bad utilization of my time because progress gets done so slowly. There's so much bureaucracy. There's so many hoops you have to jump through. There's so many inefficiencies in the process that I could see myself being like, what are we doing? And then be like, like this, like status Hispanicus, like we got like, not have her here because you can't handle her emotions. Um, and also uh, secondarily, why are people that are already having such a hard time dealing with the problem that the system caused also the people that are responsible for solving it? Like, it's a lot. Like I'm still very much in survival mode from that experience because I still have loans that I, that I have sure. to pay. I, and at the same time, I care about the students and I, you know, it's like a whole thing and I'm burnt out. And it's like, so I want people to realize that 
it's not the responsibility of the people of color to fix a problem. Well, I should say it should not be the responsibility of people of color to, you know, fix a problem that the system caused because we are dealing with so many more things. So, you know, there's that. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on all of that. I think that it'll take a lot of time and a lot of energy and hopefully there will be some changes down the road for sure. With your burnout, Karen, that you've gone through, do you mind sharing what you think helped you recover from it if you do feel recovered? And then what steps are you trying to take to prevent it from happening again in the future? Okay, so this is uh, something I'd love to talk about. So in my burnout recovery, I I decided, so let me give you a little bit more perspective of where I was. Because as you know, I shared like the first bout of burnout at five years and then the most recent one. The first bout of burnout, I was able to escape. So that's our instinct, right? When we first become burned out, we just want to be totally. out. Like you find yourself in desperate, like, oh my God, searching for like indeed.com and all these other jobs. Like I need to get the f- out otherwise I'm not going to survive. Or like, how can I? So, so you're, you know, understand that that instinct is a protective instinct of yourself trying to survive, right? But the, the issue with that is that you're not really changing the patterns that got you there in the first place. And I experienced this firsthand. The first time around, what did I do? I got the hell out. I went to Asia. I eat, eat, pray, love my way. <laughs> I did a lot of yoga. I started a, a blog at the time called Heart Surgery PA, and which no longer exists, by the way. But I just kind of like whatever. Like it was a very interesting blog. Sure. <laughs> to no one because I had like not, <laughs> no audience whatsoever. It was basically just for other PAs in cardiothoracic surgery, which there's like probably like maybe like five thousand of us in the country or even less at the time um (laughs) so uh it was escapism was nice and that's your first instinct now the second time it happened that we were all in lockdown there was a pandemic Mm -hmm. so all of a sudden the second time was a lot more traumatic obviously because i had nowhere to go so i really had to sit down and deal with it and that was really hard so i feel like in order to be able to really prevent burnout in the long term you have to examine the patterns that got you there in the first place and the patterns that got me there, and I'm sure a lot of you people can can relate to this, especially women, we're people pleasers. You know, we don't know how to say no. A lot of times we don't even know what our own needs are. And when somebody asks us, what do you need to feel better? You have an existential crisis like I did. Like, what? I, what do you mean? Like, I had no awareness of what I needed sure. throughout my life at like 38 years old. It, it was insane. So when I started to dismantle all of the systems and processes and patterns and habits that served me before to survive, you know, the everything that I told you, the PA, whatever, it was great that I had those things because they carried me. Now we're working against me. So I needed to really like spend some time dismantling this stuff. And what I, and I did, and with the help of my therapist, medication guys it's not like a one and done type of thing it's ongoing i'm constantly examining if what i'm doing is gonna help me or or not help me in the long term um but here's the thing you need bandwidth to be able to do that and when you're burned out you know you're so focused on surviving and escaping and this and that and the other you you really have no bandwidth to be able to gain the clarity that you, you need bandwidth in order to gain clarity you need space 
to to kind of like sit back and examine your patterns and do all these things and do all that. So what I found is that two things, you need to give yourself bound, bandwidth, first of all, when you're burnt out, like you're flooded. Now's not the time to go rush into another job. Now's not the time to start three side businesses, which I've done before too. Like this is, these two are not my only businesses. I've, I've done sure. other things. I've, you know, in an attempt to escape the rat race, uh, I was a Rodan and Fields consultant at some time, which by the way, I, I really enjoyed that. I know I no longer do it because I felt like, you know, supported by a lot of uh, women and it was a really great thing for me. I, I mean, I taught yoga, like there's many, many escape hatches that I have attempted sure. <laughs> in trying to find a way to make things better for myself. None of which worked, by the way, they just added onto my plate and made me feel more overwhelmed because the pattern was still the same, the pattern to escape. So what I found is that it's, it's, it's important to give yourself some space, let yourself off the hook if you're feeling burnt out, take stuff off your plate immediately, however that looks like in your life, and, and try to kind of like approach it with a clear mind. So the first thing is that I developed um, three, like, an approach to dealing with burnout. And the first one comes healthcare hangover. Like that's how it starts. So the healthcare hangover essentially is like, you know, when you leave work and you're like exhausted and you're kind of like sitting in your car, staring into space and you're just like, you're having such a difficult time, like transitioning from work into like your normal life. And you just feel existentially drained. You get home and all you want to do is either scroll or watch TV. You don't know whether to shower or to eat first. So these are some of the signs of a healthcare hangover. Where basically a healthcare hangover is where you feel that you left it on the table for your patients. Because the work is very um, intense and very you know, mentally and emotionally exhaustive. Especially when you're dealing with serious ethical issues like death or, you know, things surrounding preventing death. Um, it's, it's really hard. So I, I noticed that like my depression, I thought that it was something that just, to me, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Like from one day I was standing up and the next day I, I was like on my sure. ass because I was so burnt out. And the truth is that it never happens like that. It feels yeah. that way for people that don't have the awareness of their own needs and don't notice mm -hmm. the signs. But the truth is that when I started to kind of like, examine these patterns, I then um, realized that there were signs and the healthcare hangover was one of them. So I always say, like, pay attention to these things. This is what it looks like. Recover from that. Make sure you give yourself the time to recover from that every single time it happens, however you need to do it. Because what happens is that if you have, keep having healthcare hangovers over and over and over again, and this just becomes what it is, you're going to end up burned out. And that's scary because burnout can get really bad to the point where you're either having serious health issues, panic attack, where you think you're dying. Like it's really, really hard. And that's happened to me. Like I ended up in the ER, you know, I shared with you like the medication changing and having a really bad reaction. I was wheeled into the ER in a wheelchair because I kept passing out and coming to and passing out and wow. coming to. And I didn't know it was again, scared the shit out of me. And that was like at the height of the pandemic when there was an ER full of COVID patients, there was no mm -hmm. vaccine yet. It was really scary and it scared the crap out of me. So it's a cautionary tale into what can happen if you don't take care of the steps yeah. before. So I came up with kind of like three pillars of recovery for either a healthcare hangover or 
burnout and the three pillars of recovery are, are kind of like a triangle like you know like mass maslow's like hierarchy sure. of needs type of thing if you've ever heard of it but the i came up with this framework because it's what helped me ultimately um so the first one is just taking care of your basic needs like you're a human you need to pee you need to eat you need to rest you need to clean yourself you need to turn everything off and so take care of your basic needs like and have awareness of how um garbage dopamine can affect you meaning like you're scrolling you're watching tv yeah. whatever like that's not real recovery like you need to really hone in on the things that actually make you feel truly rested and recovered sure. okay and then the next step above that is passive or active recovery like once you've slept once you've fed yourself maybe it's the next day now gauge what kind of recovery do i need sometimes i wake up the next day and i'm like i feel good i want to go move my body because i want to feel great today and then other times it's like i can't even fathom like trying to sure. move my body or i can do more passive recovery meaning that i am sitting down i'm reading and again things out outside of mm -hmm. screens right i feel are important i'm meditating outside and meditating is hard i even just sitting outside watching the birds in my garden like whatever amount so you decide whether it's going to be active or passive people have different different ways to deal it but, but i always like to give the choice because there's always some people that can't fathom going out running or even for a walk because they're still not ready to you know it takes them slower to recover and there's some people that they recover by exercising hard so that's why it's it depends i the bottom line is i want you to gauge what you sure. need especially if you happen to be the type of, type of person that grew up in a home like I did, there were a lot of kids. No one really ever asked me what my, what I wanted and what I needed. I kind of just was told what to do. And so I didn't develop that awareness of what I need. And, you know, it can be like a, like a difficult thing. Um, and then the third and the top of the thing, after you've recovered, like your human needs, your optimize your needs, after you've done the passive or the active recovery, the third thing, is for you to have play in some way like you need to have an outlet whatever it is you like to do whether it be painting you know whatever these things i want everyone to explore something that makes them come alive and if you don't have that don't worry because most of us don't right most of us are like what's your hobby and you're like <laughs> i don't know like i don't know what my hobby like i didn't really know what my hobby was but try and figure that out and what i tell people is that a lot of times what you like doing as a kid is an insight into what you might like to yeah. do as a grown up. So that's important because that gives you like a spiritual recovery. It gives you like a way to focus your energy on something that you're doing for pure pleasure and nothing else without having to think about making money off of it, without having to think about how it affects it. Like everybody should have something that they do for the pure pleasure of it period because it just gives you something and it's been all these things have been scientifically proven all my things are really based on science and things that i've read so that's kind of like the, what the framework yeah is. that's amazing those were such great tips and advice for people and i think that it's a process to try to figure out what works well for each person as an individual so thanks for sharing all that mm -hmm. you're welcome yeah anytime more information is i have all this laid out on my blog um so she'll link to Definitely. the blog and everything like that um, and you can find all these things. I even have like some downloadables that you can, that you can help you on your journey. So like, worry not. All of this stuff is, is laid out. Yeah, for, you. for sure. Awesome.
And that concludes the end of the first part in this two-part series with Karen Calcano. So thank you so much to Karen for being open and vulnerable in sharing her story that is so full of both highs and lows as she became a PA and used the strength that was within her in addition to some help from mentors throughout her life. And I really thank her for sharing her insight about burnout as well, how she shared the details of both healthcare hangovers as well as burnout. And I really liked her hierarchy of basic needs for recovering healthcare professionals, where she talked about the three different pillars that can help with trying to recover from burnout. So thank you to each of you for taking your time to take a listen to all the important things that Karen had to say in this first part of our conversation. And definitely don't miss next week's episode where we have the second part where we wrap up the conversation with Karen and she shares so many more pieces of advice for practicing and future PAs out there, as well as many healthcare workers. So we'll see you back here next week, same time, same place. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope that you decide to continue to join me along this journey of becoming a PA the FI way. Please take a moment to press the subscribe button on the platform that you are listening to this on, but more importantly, consider sharing with another current or future PA that could benefit from the information that we reviewed in this episode. Take care and have a great rest of your day. Until next time.